This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Thomas Crendel Gilbert is a PhD student at UC Berkeley's Center for Human Compatible AI, specializing in machine ethics and epistemology. Thanks for joining us today, Thomas. Thanks for having me. How do you describe your focus area? Uh, My focus area of machine ethics research is basically the philosophical intersection of what are present largely distinct strands of technical research, these being AI safety, uh, ML fairness, machine learning fairness, and uh, what's called human-in-the-loop system design. I think it's very important that the AI systems we are building simultaneously be demonstrably safe as well as fair for distinct populations of people while also remaining under the direct control of the people with whom they will interface or interact. The problem is that it's not entirely clear what it means to do all these things at once. And in fact, that is itself a very old philosophical problem that AI is just now rediscovering. These being the problems of defining relevant domain features, the learned model, and the system interface. These are not new. These are actually just being reinvented by AI today. Can you tell us a bit about your journey to this focus? Like, how did you get to to this point? Yeah, my undergraduate degree, uh, I actually started off in astrophysics. I shortly thereafter switched uh, to a double major in philosophy and sociology. I got more interested in modeling people than in stars. Um, I then uh, was a Fulbright scholar in Denmark studying um, the history of existentialism. And then after that, got a MPhil in political thought and intellectual history at the University of Cambridge. Uh, then I came to Berkeley after that. I had a, uh, got an MA in sociology first. And while at Berkeley, realized that most of my interests uh, were going to get reinvented by AI one way or another. Uh, so I decided to design my own PhD. I named it Machine Ethics and Epistemology. That seemed like the most organic way of combining my interests in the future of society, as well as the foundations of political theory. That's so diverse. So you list the fields uh, associated with your PhD as history and theory of AI, moral cognition, technology, and delegation. So for those of of us that are not familiar with these fields, can you uh, uh, let us uh, tell us what they're about? Yeah, it might be easiest to explain all of those in reference to this classic notion of a trolley problem, the question of who should the self-driving car kill, should it kill one person to save five, that sort of thing. History and theory of AI was basically the question, how would different major canonical AI theorists like John McCarthy, Marvin Minsky, as well as more recent deep learning people like Jeffrey Hinton, solve the trolley problem? So that hinged on this question of, do we really think that there is some precise set of abstract moral rules that we could program into some AI system uh, for it to just sort of follow? Or instead, is it a question of how much or what kinds of data we would need to show the system for it to learn how it is that people would actually themselves make a trolley problem decision? Uh, So moral cognition was then about, okay, so what exactly is going on? inside someone's head when they are doing a trolley problem? Can we isolate the neural mechanisms, the the cognitive mechanisms uh, for for how they make these decisions? How are abstract philosophies, whether that's utilitarianism, whether that's Kantian ethics, uh, related to how the brain actually works? And there's a lot of interesting work in this field of moral cognition, cognitive psychology, 
that, that tries to study this problem empirically. And then finally, technology and delegation is about, okay, so what difference does it make if we have AI systems or machines making these decisions for us? So if we let them solve trolley problems, what distinctive moral calculus or problem is at stake for us when we allow them to do that on our behalf? So that ends up being a lot about uh, getting certain stakeholders engaged in these questions, having them explain what their own criteria are for dealing with morally complex questions, and how confident we should or shouldn't be in automating how we answer those things. So we had your Chai colleague, Michael Dennis, on recently as well. But can you remind us uh, what Chai is about? And, and also, is Chai part of like a larger network of institutions that focus on these types of issues? And like, how would you characterize Chai's place in, in that network? Like, does it have certain uh, specific areas of relative strength and specialization? Chai is working on technical solutions to this problem known as value alignment, the problem of how we get AI systems to learn our values as we intend them to be learned, uh, largely through the way that AI systems can observe our own human behavior and our own decisions and preferences, and from that uh, extract uh, some kind of objective function that would, that would itself define then what it is we want and how much we want it relative to other things. Chai is probably most comparable to the technical AI safety labs at DeepMind and OpenAI. Uh, it's different in that it's an academic lab. So it's led by Stuart Russell, uh, who's a professor at Berkeley, as well as Mark Nitzberg, who's the executive director. I should add that almost all of Chai's work is, is highly technical. So these are AI theorists and computer scientists. I'm distinctive in that I'm Chai's resident humanist, in a sense. So what I do is collaborate with many other members of Chai uh, to try to add and integrate a socio-technical perspective on the problems that they are working on. So we might say there's uh, there's like a kind of intellectual stack in ML, uh, where the top uh, layer is like general ideas and terminology providing direction. And maybe there's some kind of middle layer that's more theoretical math and practical algorithms and then down to engineering uh, and deployment where the rubber heaps uh, meets the road and things get deployed. Um, do you see things that way? or what? And what part of the stack would you say uh, that you're more, most focused on? In many ways, my work consists in rethinking that stack to make it structurally aligned with human values. So a lot of abstract discussions of value alignment tend to focus exclusively on, on the objective function or on the uncertainty that surrounds the objective function, on the general ideas and terminology uh, of value without questioning these other layers or the order in which those layers get stacked. Uh, in my view, the most pressing and interesting questions in value alignment actually lie in how uh, all of these things interact, how explicit conceptions of value as well as mathematical representation, as well as problems of mechanism design. And finally, engineering practice itself are themselves permitted to interact with each other. You know, why is it that computer science has a certain relationship with engineering and both of those have a certain relationship with data science and all of those have a certain relationship with the actual stakeholders or consumers of these systems. This is what I mean by the political economy of reinforcement learning, which we'll discuss more uh, later on. So let's talk about the Hard Choices paper you co-authored. That is, Hard Choices in Artificial Intelligence, Addressing Normative Uncertainty Through Sociotechnical Commitments. That was with Dobby, um, yourself, and Mintz. So what is the gist of this paper? 
The paper, as you mentioned, is co-authored with uh, who at the time were fellow graduate students at Berkeley. They've now graduated. Uh, and the paper itself reinterprets many of the prominent positions in machine ethics right now uh, by means of a basic distinction between what we call normative uncertainty and what philosophers have traditionally called vagueness. So normative uncertainty is how many practitioners of machine learning and reinforcement learning have approached the problem of optimizing an AI system, namely the notion that if we give it enough data and if we provide a sufficiently good learning algorithm, eventually the system will figure out what good behavior actually means in a way that we don't have to directly specify. But this itself actually presupposes an answer to a problem that philosophers have been thinking about since the time of Plato and Aristotle, namely the question of how it is we account for a fundamental lack of clarity about the problem we are facing. In other words, when we don't have a deterministic problem formulation at hand, uh, how can we be confident that any such algorithm could arrive at good behavior, period? And the original example debated in ancient Greece was called the Sorites Paradox, uh, which was a, a technical name for this situation in which um, there's a certain number of grains of sand. And the question was, how many grains of sand does it take before that constitutes a heap of sand? So it's this question of the heapness of the grains. And indeed, there were, there were different positions at the time for answering this question. You could argue that there was, in fact, some objective answer to the number of grains that would make a heap, even if we don't know what it is. But perhaps if we had more information about the nature of the sand or about um, how large it is, then we could, we could discern uh, an answer to the question. You could also argue that different communities or city-states might legitimately answer that question differently because they use the word heap to refer to slightly different things. These are different language communities, in other words. Uh, so that was another position. Or you could argue, in fact, there is no answer, that it's impossible to specify uh, a deterministic formulation of heapness because the notion of heap might be inherently vague. So these are all different approaches to how we resolve vagueness, how we make sense of vagueness, either as a feature of the world, a feature of our minds, or a feature of the communities that we belong to. And the point we make in this paper is that all of these positions are actually represented in the machine ethics literature implicitly. And instead of arbitrarily kind of going with the one that makes the most intuitive sense, whether you're a computer scientist or, or an engineer uh, or, or somebody who works on the, the AI governance formulation of, of AI, uh, the question instead should be, what a principled approach to the problem of vagueness really means in the context of the particular system that is being evaluated for, for development. So this paper refers to existential risk or X-risk and uh, also fairness, accountability, and transparency uh, approaches to safety. Like, Are your concerns um, totally separate from these or more like a superset of these? Our argument is very much a superset of these positions. So what I call X-risk and the fat style approaches are examples of two of these schools of thought that I was describing earlier. X-risk has a, a strong affinity with what philosophers have called epistemicism, which is the view that there, as I was saying before, that there is an objective answer to this problem. 
but that we might be ignorant at present of what the answer is. And it furthermore assumes that the an- there's some answer that could be learned by observing human behaviors or learning from human preferences uh, with enough data at such a scale that eventually the answer can be found. The fairness literature instead often assumes a position that philosophers call semantic indeterminacy, which is the notion that different communities might well disagree about what a safe system actually means, and that this has to be taken into account. This this indeterminacy uh, must be considered when building a system. To make that concrete, a self-driving car might still not be safe, even if it never kills people. If it's often getting in crashes, if it suddenly accelerates or decelerates in ways that make people feel uncomfortable, it's completely imaginable that stakeholders would not feel safe around it, even though it's technically never going to to cause any fatalities. Uh, So our concerns in the paper are a superset in the sense that we're saying, look, all of these assumptions may or may not be relevant as more or less valid interpretations of what a good system would mean in the particular context of the question we are asking. So the question is really, Um, what do we want to do with this system? What do we want to call good? Rather than just uh, treating one of these schools of thought as paradigmatic and just running with it. The paper also includes a case study involving the ACLU, that's the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, They're critiquing Amazon's face recognition system. Can you remind us about what happened uh, in that case and, and how do you interpret the problem in that case? Yes, so the ACLU made use of the recognition API designed by the Amazon team and found that the system, when applied to the faces of members of Congress, was both inaccurate in its classification, so it got many of the faces wrong, and it was also racist in the way it was inaccurate. So it was differentially more likely to misclassify the faces of black members of Congress than than non-black members of Congress. Uh, they And so the ACLU did this to show how inadequate the system was from a design standpoint. Interestingly, the Amazon team responded uh, to justify what the purpose of the system was, namely that their API was deliberately designed to be very restrictive, such that they put enormous work into defining exactly which police departments could have access to it. Uh, based off of standing relationships with those organizations. And so therefore, the system is trustworthy, because even though it might be technically inaccurate in certain instances, it's never meant to be used in those instances, uh, unless we like completely trust the institution or the organization that's using it. Uh, So it was sort of like a matter of saying, you used it in a way it wasn't meant to be used. Uh, And the ACLU responded saying that, well, wait, if that's true, why has your team... Uh, over the weeks that we've been debating this in public, suddenly put so much time and energy into updating the classifier to improve its technical accuracy. Uh, there seems to be a contradiction there. So I think that's actually a profound point. What the ACOU was pointing out was that at least two different interpretations of vagueness were simultaneously at stake, and the Amazon team was being inconsistent in its use of them. You can't simultaneously claim that an ironclad API could solve this problem, which is really a kind of appeal to resolving semantic indeterminacy, and yet also claim that greater system accuracy will help, which is to reference a form of epistemicism. You can't both claim that racial bias is something you can technically minimize or eliminate, 
and something that can be entirely avoided by just partnering with the right law enforcement agencies. Their, their theory of the case itself was inconsistent. So in the conclusion in this paper, it says, this set of socio-technical commitments will need to be integrated into the training of engineers, data scientists, and designers as qualifications. So um, can you tell us, what do you mean by socio-technical commitments here? A socio-technical commitment is sort of like a promise or a pledge that the developers of the system make to the stakeholders whose concerns are implicated in the system's specification. It's a way of asking to what extent am I, as a designer, responsible for how my system performs. For, For example, if I'm deploying a facial recognition system and I claim it will perform according to a certain threshold of accuracy, what guarantees can I give not just that it will meet that threshold, but that that threshold is in fact the right one, that it's the good threshold. Um, so it's both technical and normative, which is sort of how I'm defining socio-technical as, the, as the, the bridge or the boundary between those two things. To make that concrete again, a system that is 99% accurate, but whose stakes are life or death might still not be good. It might still not be one stakeholders want with good reason. Uh, whereas one that is 70% accurate, like just something simple, like a like a, a content recommendation in social media or like the Pandora app recommending me songs, uh, that might be fine uh, given that the stakes are so much lower. So this is a matter of context. The commitments are context specific, and it's a way of indexing your relationship with stakeholders as as a developer. Can you tell us more about what you think this type of training might look like? This is an open question. We are considering this right now. I have some follow-up work exploring this idea. I will say that I believe years from now, it will be considered very strange that AI designers were building algorithms for self-driving cars and drones and credit scoring systems without ever talking to a pedestrian or to a homeowner or to a disadvantaged community. I grew up in Appalachia before I went to college or grad school. And I think all the time about how we need AI theorists and engineers to do something like a medical residency, something like a a clinical environment where they have to diagnose real systems that already exist and are affecting real people and then diagnose them in terms of the actual stakes as they're able to be observed rather than just speculated about based off of what we think may or may not happen once they're deployed. Right now, a lot of AI research is like um, a lot of very brilliant young people who are very committed to learn how to sail. And they then go on to spend the next several years, or even in many cases, much of their careers, sitting on the shore, uh, learning how to expertly tie different kinds of knots. And instead, what we need is to put those people out on the water and actually go sailing, learn how to sail. Uh, Learning the kind of knots is only really important so that once you're on the water, you can make a good choice in the context of, uh, okay, given the wind speed and direction where we're trying to go, why should I tie a bowline, you know, (laughs) rather than than some other kind of knot? If there are any sailors uh, listening to this, they'll get that joke. Um, It's a matter of situating your knowledge in the context of the stakes such that you're exercising good judgment rather than just uh, some kind of claim to, to accuracy. 
So I guess when you talk about engaging um, various types of stakeholders and, and more deep engagement that might be uh, with the stakeholders that might be affected by the system, I, I guess from the point of view of maybe corporations that just want to start deploying products and start profiting, um, what would compel uh, you know these organizations to to want to do that all that extra work and uh, all the costs associated with them? Is there is it something we would need to force them to do as a society with regulation, or or how might that work? I think that there is more than one approach here, but yes. In brief, I think that we need to change the incentives of these companies so that it is in their own self-interest to do this. And in fact, I think it is in their own self-interest for these companies to do this, because if you're deploying a system uh, without taking these considerations into account, that system is not, in fact, going to be a good system. It might work in the short term. It might help uh, in, in conforming to some short-term business model. But it is not actually aligned in any structural sense with our notion of collective good. This is really, really important and I think massively uh, misunderstood or underappreciated in the AI landscape right now. What it means to build a good AI system means not just that it is aligned with preferences that we can model, but that it is aligned with where we want society to be headed that the system is well aimed with respect to what kind of polity we want to be. And that's why I don't think you can separate questions of corporate governance, questions of regulation, questions of substantive conceptions of human value from technical questions of problem specification and optimization. These are in fact part of the same socio-technical landscape and this, this straddling of that boundary is what all of my papers are trying to do to reveal questions at the intersection of, of these two sides uh, rather than to um, purport to answer them in advance of being more clear and aware of the stakes of the question. Let's move on to your, your white paper on pearls and autonomous vehicles. That is... Mapping the Political Economy of Reinforcement Learning Systems, the Case of Autonomous Vehicles uh, by yourself, Thomas Colonel Gilbert. So first, to get help us get oriented, um, can you first explain the phrase political economy for those of us who might not be too familiar with it? Yes, political economy is a very old term. So historically, political economy is what social science basically was before it splintered off into modern academic specializations of psychology, economics, political science, sociology, history. It's a combination of all of these fields. And that's really just because it tries to examine how uh, we define the good society. What is a good society? And what is the set of institutions, human behaviors, virtues, that are needed to constitute that vision. More specifically, uh, political economy has tried to examine how it is that many of the same human values and preferences are expressed differently. They have different modalities, whether they're expressed economically or politically. Uh, just think of the way that a choice you're making as a consumer is different than one that you're making as a as a as a, uh, a citizen. That that voting with your dollar is not the same as actually voting. 
Uh, so in terms of reinforcement learning, to make this a little bit more technically grounded, it's useful to think about this from the standpoint of what makes optimization and specification different. Markets are sort of like social optimizers for the things that we want that try to effectively match consumers and producers, where the producers compete uh, over providing some good or service that consumers are choosing. Whereas politics is more like a social specifier. It's, it's, how we, it's about how we collectively choose to define the things we want in terms of their, their importance uh, for living well together. Okay, that was helpful. So now, what was the main idea in this paper? The central idea is to elaborate this relationship I'm seeing between future forms of RL optimization and different forms of monopoly power that have been studied by legal scholars and political philosophers. A good example to illustrate this is a self-driving car. We discussed this in the paper, I discuss it. If you use reinforcement learning to uh, learn a particular kind of routing algorithm for a car, then as you scale up the fleet and the, and the vehicle platform, you are essentially privatizing public infrastructure namely the access to the road, because you are, as a designer, in the position of deciding what it means to drive optimally on those roads, and in effect, nudging other drivers and road users to conform to that resultant definition of driving. So it is a different way of investigating how self-driving cars should drive. If what we are in fact building when we build autonomous vehicles are monopolies in the making, at what point does it make more sense to think of these companies and services as public utilities rather than what they now are, which is private corporate entities? So you talk about the reward hypothesis. Can you remind, remind us what, uh, what that is? Yes, the reward hypothesis, and I'm drawing from the formulation of Rich Sutton and Michael Littman when I'm talking about it, is a kind of philosophical statement about how intelligent behavior can be defined rigorously. The formal definition is that the hypothesis is the uh, maximization of expected value of the cumulative sum of a received scalar signal. And the idea that that maximization is all of what we mean by intelligent behavior, any intelligent behavior oriented to achieving some task. The point there in layman's terms is that it should be possible to exhaustively specify what it means to do an activity well in terms of that activity. So for example, if you're playing Super Mario Brothers, every jump that you perform, every coin you collect, every enemy you kill, any amount of points you acquire, every level you beat, somehow each of those things brings you either closer or farther away from beating the game and freeing Princess Toadstool at the end. That there is, in fact, some like precise answer to this question in theory of what it would mean to play the game well based off of every action you take within the game. But in fact, I think most human activities are not clearly like this because most of the things humans value are not scalar in nature. They are rather pluralistic. They exist on different normative scales. They can point in different directions depending on the context. In other words, most human values are more like vector than they are like a scalar. So instead, I think that when you really think through the word hypothesis, it makes more sense to approach reinforcement learning specification 
as a kind of translation of human concerns and priorities into a scalar conception of value, rather than just assuming that scalar conception is just sort of there for our system to discover. The problem that the designer faces then is how to make that translation a good one rather than a bad one. So some RL systems um, can include constraints as well as rewards, like for safety or other reasons. Um, Do constraints also fit into this reward hypothesis framework? Yes, constraints are key. So the political economy of RL is about identifying and formalizing the constraints needed to complement the reward hypothesis. That is what I mean by a good translation of the domain. So in the paper, I define the political economy of RL formally as the science of determining the limits of the hypothesis for a given domain. These limits have to be specified in order for the behavior of the system to be interpreted as good or bad by the other sorts of agents, namely other humans, stakeholders, perhaps other AIs affected by its behavior. This is not meant to be a rejection of the hypothesis. It's really just to state, uh, restate what it is, which is a hypothesis. And the way we evaluate hypotheses is by empirically investigating the domain and evaluating our different assumptions about how we think it works, uh, such that we arrive at a formulation of our system that is well mapped onto the integrity of that domain. So it seems to me that the reward function in RL is is making something explicit, but it's something that already exists. Like it's a way to balance between multiple concerns. And I would say most organizations today are generally already optimizing balancing uh, multiple concerns, but usually in an implicit way, like without uh, numerical coefficients. Um, And we generally wouldn't know how they prioritize or make trade-offs exactly between these things internally until something goes wrong and we hear about it in the news. So when talking about how RL changes things in terms of political economy, do you think it's Uh, a difference in degree, like this large-scale automation just makes the details of these reward functions like a bit more impactful? Um, Or is it really a change of kind? Does does RL take us somewhere very different due to these reward functions? Right. This is the key question. I don't think there is a deterministic answer to this question. Um, It's the kind of question that actually my reading group on the political economy of RL is always trying to ask. Until we identify the constraints on an RL system, we can't really understand whether or how differences of degree and kind are at stake. So it is important to understand that reinforcement learning is often not just making something explicit which already exists. It's often proposing an interpretation of intelligent behavior that has never before written down. Um, And there may be uncertainty about that definition, Uh, even from the standpoint of the designer. There could also be disagreement about it from the standpoint of stakeholders, or there could be lack of clarity about that definition's application to the particular deployment context. And again, what I just said, those different dimensions of this this uncertainty, um, that's actually the connection to the hard choices paper, because in fact, each of those problems, each of those ambiguities Uh, have this legacy in the history of philosophy to these different schools of thought, namely epistemicism, semantic indeterminacy, and uh, what we call in that paper ontic vagueness. Uh, The idea basically is that, look, the political economy of RL is about investigating the domain to figure out 
how this structural transformation is varying it in either degree or in kind. Is your view that moving to RL means that organizations should be exposing and maybe even publicly debating the design of their reward functions? Or like, do you see a world in which reward functions um, will be or should be standardized? Like today we have, we, we would expect that Tesla and, and Waymo have reward functions that maybe differ to some extent, and but they're judged mainly on the outcomes in terms of safety and performance, profitability, things like that. Right. I believe it will be both. To some extent, these reward functions will need to be subject to external standards. And to some extent, competing firms' functions can be allowed to vary and judged in terms of outcomes on various parameters of concerns, whether that's to different cities, different neighborhoods, different highways, uh, etc. The point of this Pearl's perspective that I'm outlining is for practitioners to get better at understanding this spectrum and figuring out according to appropriate assumptions about good behavior uh, in the context of this city with this platform and this routing path, what are the features that should be allowed to vary and what are the features that should not be allowed to vary? Uh, There's a balance implicit there between the standards we need uh, to hold ourselves to in order for the system really to perform well and also the legitimately distinct approaches to optimization that our platform might pursue based off of what users of that platform or users of roads may or may not want to choose uh, for themselves. So this paper mentions the case of potholes in that vehicle fleets could uh, structurally generate them in specific places uh, depending on their routing. So what what do you see as a solution to, to that type of problem? Yes. So I don't think this is specific to reinforcement learning. For example, we already know this is happening with apps like Waze, which have caused congestion on particular routes uh, once the app deems them to be more efficient than other routes for routing purposes. So I think the way this plays out with reinforcement learning is that we need to be thinking about what makes near and medium term solutions different than long term solutions. In the near and medium term, it means we need to be careful about the scale and degree of deployment that we make for self-driving cars. Wearing down public roads with these systems is inevitable as they scale, as they are deployed more and more intensively. Um, That's just of a piece with what it means to test these systems well. So what we need to do is try and interact and consult with stakeholders about what modes of deployment are acceptable as these Um, as this new kind of wearing down uh, becomes a more and more salient feature of the domain. In the long term, as I hinted earlier, I do think it means that self-driving car companies will need to be reconceived as providing a public service and regulated accordingly, namely as public utilities, uh, even if they are or remain privately built and technically overseen. Uh, In other words, uh, self-driving car firms will need to be found liable for the damages that their fleets do. And we will have to substantively reinterpret our conceptions of tort law, our conception of what sorts of harm constitute public damage in order to actually oversee what these, what kind of service is being provided to us. We don't have to do that. We don't have to reinterpret the law in this way, but I think that we should. And I also think that even if we don't, we should be honest about what that would mean. 
which mean which would be that roads would no longer be public, and we would really only retain access to them uh, thanks to the beneficence of these private companies. So I'm wondering if we have the political will or capacity to to deal with these types of, of issues. Like it seems like to me, we live in this world where it's hard to get people to wear masks, even though it's clearly we're in a pandemic. And then we have social media polarizing people for ad clicks and we're having trouble dealing with that issue. It seems these things seem very straightforward. So would the governments of tomorrow want to want to take that on or would they be just overburdened and, and be glad to offload, you know, details of reward functions to the FANG companies of the day and then and then maybe haul them in for televised hearings when things go wrong at some point? It's a great question. Um, and it's one that I think about basically every day in the context of my research. And I don't have great answers, but I will highlight a theme of both the Hard Choices paper and of this paper as well, which is that I actually think we need much more democratic uh, approaches to RL specification and to how we approach the problem of AI development more generally. That might sound strange because we live in a political moment where uh, it's very hard to imagine uh, politics going well and, and engaging stakeholders in a way that doesn't quickly become dysfunctional. I mean, if you imagine some kind of just open Wild West style uh you know, debate on Twitter about what the reward function for driving should be, I don't think it would go well. Um, And that's also not really what I mean by a democratic set of solutions. I think that it's more a question of how are we able to hold these companies accountable in ways that it becomes in their own self-interest to uh, govern themselves in a more, uh, a more democratic fashion. That doesn't necessarily mean that people inside the company should vote up or down on what the reward function should be. What it means is that we create channels for dissent within these companies and also as a path to external stakeholders so that we are able to have the types of feedback with the environment that will actually inform us whether the RL specification that we chose is good or inadequate. So it might sound strange or ironic, but in fact, I really deeply believe from my collaborations with, um, with computer scientists and AI theorists that the path to good specification is uh, democratic commitments. It is uh, a leveraging of new types and forms of feedback to the environment that in fact constitutes uh, a, a kind of democratic ethos. It is stakeholder engagement. Um, there should be ways in which citizens, municipal bodies, uh, state-level departments of motor vehicles, etc., are able to um, access the API, are able to uh, begin to question the featureization adopted by developers as the system is being deployed, um, and this sh- this is in the developer's interest because if again if you don't have this feedback, I don't see how you're really going to be confident technically in the performance of your system. You can wash your hands of it and say it's optimal, but in doing so, you're really choosing to not investigate 
this more substantive question of how optimal performance relates to a substantive conception of good performance. Those are not the same thing. Um, and in fact, that's what's at stake in what makes optimization different than specification. So this is really where I need to see, this is where I want the, the, the field to move and where I think it in fact has to move is that I think computer scientists need to engage more with policy. I think that the, the paucity and the erosion of our current institutions, civic institutions, and political norms needs to be confronted as, uh, as a problem that demands a new set of institutions, a reformed understanding of our own civic commitments in the context of AI development. I, I can't help it but be reminded how political some of this stuff is. And um, when you get right down to it, if, uh, if a company is doing something with a, with a large workforce of human labor versus in the future, they're doing it way more optimally with a, you know, a large fleet of robots, it's kind of the same thing, but it's kind of totally different. Like it's like turning, it's almost like turning the capitalism dial way up and, and the, and the speed of capitalism way up. And making very clear, like blatantly bald face clear, what the real objectives of the of the whole enterprise are. Some maybe environmentalists talk about capitalism as like a mechanism to turn nature into into money and wastelands or something like that. And if that that process just gets you know sped up by a factor of you know umpteen orders of magnitude, we're going to have to really face that problem a lot more directly. And how do we engage? I mean, what does that reward function really mean? Um, it might just be some formulas in a robot, but it also, you know, multiplied over these giant fleets. You know, where does the where do the interests of the public come into that that equation? And and it seems like that's what you're trying to do with your um, with your Pearls Research Group. Is that right? Yes. So the Pearls Research Group is um, it's an attempt to extend the themes of my of my white paper and of, of related work being done by other graduate students, mostly at Berkeley, into a community and into a research agenda. So it's an attempt to think about um, how it is that the systems that we are building uh, are going to find themselves having a certain relationship with markets or a certain relationship with uh, existing social institutions, whether that's politics, whether that's, um, you know, domestic settings, whether that's individual behavior online, whether that's traffic, you know, we don't, we don't decide these things as designers. Um, we can design the systems in, a, in whatever way we want, but we don't design them on terms of our own choosing. <laughs> uh, many of the terms of our uh, that are given to us uh, are a product of the way the world has been set up in advance of our system being deployed. And so the aim of this group, this Pearls group, uh, is to uh, help people who are trying to already think about this problem, largely in the context of specification, of RL specification. And I should also add a uh, multi-agent RL, I think, is an interesting field that's emerging in part just because they can't help but think this way. Uh, they, they cannot help but not take the world for granted and, and reflect very deeply on, on how their, their agents are sort of learning simultaneously from each other and from the way that they think other agents are learning about them and so on. 
uh, it requires you to think about uh, the the sociology, the the structure of the world that they are learning to navigate. So there, there's an interesting way in which these emerging subfields of RL um, are kind of reinventing political economy in a way that I find very exciting, uh, very intellectually interesting, and also very profound uh, in a in a in a political sense. Uh, and and also in an economic sense, because really what we're going to be able to do with these systems is re-specify the institutions that already exist and specify institutions that have never existed before. And and that's very powerful. There's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity for optimism there. And so the the attempt of this community is really to kind of lovingly invite different branches of RL into this conversation as a way to advance their own technical work and just as a way to, as I was suggesting before, a way to improve and refine the, the metaphors and just the semantics of how the public at large should be thinking about RL uh, rather than just as a, an impending future that they can't do anything about. It should be a way for them to reconceive of their own agency uh, and to feel empowered to articulate their values uh, on a new on a new terrain, the terrain of reinforcement learning. And I noticed one of the readings um, for your research group is "Societal Implications of Deep Reinforcement Learning" by Jess Whittlestone uh, and uh, Kai Arulkumaran and and Crosby, Matthew Crosby. And I just want to uh, note to listeners we had Kai on very recently, and uh, and we'll be talking to uh, the author Jess Whittlestone. Uh, about that paper next week. Moving on to uh, your other paper, that's AI development for the public interest from abstraction traps to socio-technical risks by Andrus et al. Do you want to give us the lowdown on, on, on this paper? Right. This paper is a collaboration with other members of my student group at Berkeley. So yeah, that would be uh, so it's a co-authored paper with all of us. It's McCain, Andrus, uh, who's now at the Partnership on AI, Sarah Dean, myself, Nathan Lambert, who I believe you had on previously to this podcast, and also Tom Zick. And the paper is uh, more of an STS-style investigation of different fields of AI that are emerging, many of which we've discussed. So AI safety, fair machine learning, human-in-the-loop autonomy, as well as control theory. And in the paper, we look to the history of these subfields to try to understand how they first became interested in different types of social risk and eventually claimed to have found technical solutions to those types of social risk. So in brief, AI safety found a way to care about extinction, the problem of the complete eradication of life. Uh, Fair machine learning is much more specifically interested in inequity or inequality across subgroups. And human-in-the-loop researchers tend to be more strictly concerned with accidents. If your system just undergoes some kind of mishap or some unanticipated uh, rupture in assumptions that makes it break. Uh, So what what we try and look at in the paper is how these fields' definitions of each of those risks are problematic and actually remain quite vague in certain ways. Uh, And the paper is really this attempt to help these communities understand what they can learn from each other rather than just to critique those definitions. It's sort of to look at how these these communities can look to each other to see 
what other ways there are of conceiving of the original problem that they see their formalizations as making tractable. So do you consider sociotechnics as that set of like safety, fairness, and human in the loop autonomy? And do you think that that's like an exhaustive list or are we just starting to, to um, define what, what's contained in that set? I don't think it's an exhaustive list. I, th- I think of sociotechnics as a question. It's the question of how we address the gaps between our definitions of the problem and our tools for working on the problem. It's another way to say it is it's this problem of defining the relationship between your system, the system you're building, and external reality. It's to recognize that there is a need for some interface there, but that the definition of that interface is vague or it's imprecise. And so there's this, you know, there's there's these two levels of uncertainty. There's model uncertainty, which is something that you can minimize, you know, with uh, by reducing the model bias. But then there's also uncertainty about the model. Is this the right model? What other what other assumptions do we need? Which assumptions are wrong? That that includes this sociotechnics problem, uh, and that's that's really where it enters into the picture. Um, you know, one way of illustrating that is I've I've seen papers where you know each community, for example, AI safety papers that reference the the impending death of the human race or the end of human civilization. Um, and then they, they try to illustrate some, some technical intervention on this by, by a toy example of, of robots that are trying to figure out how to slice a cake in half to share it without explicitly negotiating. And, you know, there, from a technical standpoint, that toy example, like it doesn't really matter. But as a metaphor, it's quite imprecise. Like there, if you were to explain this to someone who doesn't understand what a Markov decision process is, or what inverse reinforcement learning means, they would be totally mystified by a paper that is illustrating existential risk through some kind of example that's so constrained. And so, like, sociotechnics is just a way of asking what, like, how do we address situations like that in a way that doesn't make our own work misread? As, because you want, you want your work to set itself up for success, and setting yourself up for success means that you're able to illustrate and interpret the significance of your formal work in a way that the people who are going to be interacting with the actual system can understand. Because only if they can understand it can they provide you with the types of feedback that you would need to confirm the assumptions behind the original specification. So we need to see all of these layers of sociotechnical abstraction as in a workable relationship with each other, rather than as sort of not my problem, that's the, pu- that's the public's problem, or that's, you know, that's the stakeholder's problem, or that's PR's problem, that's the lawyer's problem. It's, it's pretty clearly all of our problem. <laughs> and so you want that division of labor to reflect what we want the system to be, rather than just incidental and outside of your specification. And this reminds me of a podcast I listened to yesterday, the Robot Brains podcast uh, by Peter Abiel, and he was interviewing uh, Jan LeCun from Facebook about this very uh, issue of what the uh, you know objective function is for Facebook. And Jan LeCun was was saying, who's claiming that the the actual objective they fun- the function they use is not just engagement, but it's actually uh, some proxies for um, 
for for users enjoyment of their time uh, but what does that really mean right like someone sitting on the couch eating fast food might be saying they're enjoying their time but from a psychologist perspective um, they're not setting themselves up for for uh, you know long-term happiness and success so I guess it goes back to what you were saying in the very beginning about uh, deciding on um, you know what what value really means yeah and this is again this is the oldest problem there is in the book. So Aristotle's name for this was eudaimonia. It's human flourishing. What does it mean to build a system that doesn't just uh, provide me what I expect it to provide, but one that actually improves my life, one that helps me aim my own life uh, in a good way in the context of the particular activity? Um, I think that an enormous proportion of the ethical and political problems that we face with RL and AI as a whole um, is something that are were actually very, very well understood by classical thinkers. Um, they obviously didn't talk about RL or about robots. Uh, they had their own language for how we should think about these things. Um, I'll just basically, as an aside, mention that the first several books of, of The Politics by Aristotle are about precisely this problem of how it is that artificial beings can be made to reliably service humans in a way that approximates the good life. Um, of course, that's because uh, for Aristotle, that's what a slave was. Um, and so that's, that's the way that this was understood at the time uh, was this problem. But it's, it's, it's kind of funny to me that probably the single most influential work of political theory ever written at least in Western philosophy, is specifically about the problem of how we make systems that are value aligned with the people they are meant to serve. And yet I see very little work uh, or very little engagement with these ideas in the context of, of AI safety or of AI theory or, or even of, of technical work on value alignment. And, and one of your papers or one of the papers in this set, and I'm not sure which one was referring to these also referring to these old stories, like, um, the stories of the genie, um, in Arabian nights. And this, this story that, that I know from my childhood, the monkey's paw, where this thing could make a wish and it would make your wish come true, but not in the way you want, which is so, so much like these, uh, failure modes of RL, um, so, so yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, you can connect it back to these things that, that maybe everyone, everyone is familiar with. Yeah. I think the example that Stuart Russell has used repeatedly is what he calls the, the King Midas problem, which, you know, the story of King Midas being that he, he wished for the ability to touch anything and turn it into gold. Uh, he almost immediately regretted that decision because, uh, he, you know, starved to death or there was, you know, the prospect of that. Uh, you can't drink, you can't, you can't drink water, you can't eat food. I think that some versions of the story have an ending with him in despair, uh, reaching out to touch his daughter, and then she turns to gold too. So he basically kills her. Um, I think that there's, this is actually an example of what I mean. We just need better metaphors to being to describe the problems that we as designers are facing, when we are trying to build these systems. And there's an extremely rich treasure trove in Western intellectual history and, and maybe even beyond it to better communicate these concerns to the public in ways that I think the public is, in fact, ready to understand. Um, it's just that we've kind of sadly learned to 
not trust our ability to engage them. And so we have, we haven't trusted our own ability to creatively reimagine these metaphors. You know, I was going to give this example, the best example of an abstraction trap uh, that I can think of uh, in the context of this paper um, is, is a trolley problem. Anyone who builds self-driving cars could tell you that this is not how self-driving cars actually work or how they're actually engineered. Um, the idea that there is some deterministic uh, like formula for who the car should kill is one of the most dystopian things <laughs> that, that I've ever heard and also just completely off base for, for how, uh, how these systems are actually going to exist and will actually affect real people. But we do like to think in terms of trolley problems because in a superficial way, it seems to connect a real ethical concern with what in principle could be a design decision or what the public imagines designers doing when they're building these systems. So instead, the question should be, what would stakeholders think about my system in terms of its actual performance? Would they understand it? Is a technical solution worthwhile? Or if not, what, what further feedback do I need from them for such a technical solution to be able to be envisioned? So I think trolley problems themselves are an excellent example of a problematic metaphor that is doing much more to limit our ability to engage the public than it is to actually empower it to give us the information we need to, to really design these systems well. In this AI development paper, you spoke about abstraction traps. Can you tell us about abstraction traps and how do we tell if we're stuck in one? Right. So I just gave the example of a, of a trolley problem being a kind of abstraction trap. An abstraction trap is, it's a way of thinking that you have a technical handle on a social problem in a way that you have lost the ability to reflexively interrogate. So again, we could imagine a way of drive, of, of designing self-driving cars where in fact there was some 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 rule that you could just encode for how they should behave in a particular situation like that that would lead them to quote unquote deliberately kill one person rather than five to use some kind of utility calculus. Um, and certainly utility calculus is involved in how we think about MDPs and how we think about reinforcement learning, um, but not at that level of abstraction. So an abstraction trap is really just a way of saying that there are different levels of abstraction that are simultaneously at stake in what it in fact would mean to develop your system responsibly. Um, again, just to restrict the example to cars, uh, there are different levels of abstraction in terms of is the car safe from the standpoint of the pedestrian? Is the car safe from the standpoint of other drivers? Is it safe from the standpoint of people in the car? Is it safe from the standpoint of the municipal planner? Is it safe from the standpoint of the Department of Transportation? Is it safe from the standpoint of the State Department of Motor Vehicles? Those are all different layers of abstraction uh, that in their own way would have different criteria for what it would mean to build the system in a way that is safe. And the way you avoid these traps is by, you know, it actually... Uh, a good example, I think it's called, um, you know, this this phenomenon of rubber ducking, 
where you have a rubber duck on your desk. And if you're stuck uh, designing something or engineering something or programming something, you, you turn to the rubber duck and you try and explain what you're doing to the rubber duck. And, and that's meant to kind of lift you out of your, uh, your cognitive uh, disorientation or confusion. I think we need to rubber duck uh, abstraction traps. And the way you do that is, you know, not by putting a rubber duck on your desk. It's by having some kind of line, some kind of through line or connection to the stakeholders who are involved in the abstraction layer that you're working on. So for example, if you're optimizing traffic over a city grid, you should have some kind of connection to the municipal planner or this, the urban layout designer, whoever person's job it is to have overseen the development of that city grid, like whatever office it is. And you should basically rubber duck them and basically try and explain to them what you're doing and have them explain to you in turn, okay, that either makes sense or it doesn't, or here's how I would do it, or these are the features you need to make sure you can you include and what are the ones you don't have to include because those are my agenda and not yours, or here's what kind of validation would make sense or not. Like it's a matter of registering the the how far removed your design assumptions are from what would make sense to the people who actually inhabit that layer of abstraction. We want to minimize that distance so that it doesn't impede uh, the way we're developing these systems. Is there maybe um, an economic trap where all of these, you know, socio-technical concerns are satisfied, but things still turn out really bad for almost everyone? Like maybe systems end up technically safe and, and fair in terms of, uh, you know, the, the fate criteria, um, but then they produce... Uh, you know, economic outcomes that are super unfair, or is that maybe outside of the scope of of this type of work and 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 really lives in in economics? I think it's a great example. I, I think it's absolutely in scope here. Um, this is also the overlap with the Pearls paper and the Pearls reading group. So economic traps are a specific form of abstraction trap where the system is behaving optimally, but was misspecified in a way that could create enormous inequalities or forms of regulatory capture for which there, there may be no specifically technical solution. Um, and I, I mean, the field of economics itself often falls into traps like this. And so, you know, that's something that other branches of social science often try and critique it for doing is to say that there's some mismatch between you know, your assumptions of what are called homo economicus and how people actually live. You know, this assumption that people are utility maximizing, that people are rational with respect to what they want, um, this style of investigation that behavioral economists uh, have have pioneered or have, have elaborated in many contexts, um, that that's more or less problematic depending on uh, how you think the domain actually works in which people live. And so economic traps are not new, but they're also very much what's at stake for pearls. So we talked about educating the public, um, but earlier when we were, we were talking about this issue, you mentioned um, the idea of organizing new publics um, and, as part of educating the public. Can you, tell, can you explain what, what did you mean by that and um, any other comments on, on how the public should be involved? Yeah, I think that we've circled this a few times now. I think that the way we should engage the public 
should reflect the use of language, uh, which to be blunt, basically means the, the use of metaphor to more or less accurately index the way the system is going to perform uh, in terms of the actual expectations of the stakeholders who will be affected by its performance. Um, so yeah, this is, this is really going to ultimately come down to, are we as designers and also just as AI developers at scale, are we going to be able to organize new publics in a way that they can articulate their own concerns to themselves and to us that make us understand uh, features of the environment that we otherwise wouldn't have thought to include in the model specification. I, I really mean this in a, a very technical sense that if we don't empower the public, um, not just by giving them more autonomy or by listening to them more, but by uh, giving them opportunities to articulate their own experience of a system, then we won't actually know if we've misfeaturized the environment. Uh, there's, there's this kind of, and again, we, we discussed this in the context of the, the so-called stack, the machine learning or the RL stack um, that determines the way that model assumptions are related to the data or related to the model or related to the API or related to, you know, this, this very specific hierarchy. And the reason we need to empower the public is not just because it seems more ethical or it seems more responsible or something, something kind of loosely humanistic like that. It's really so that we can identify the ways in which that hierarchy are themselves misspecified and unworkable with respect to the problem that the system is meant to to solve or just to just to interact with we need to find ways of soliciting from the people who have the criteria in their own experience for what the specification should be to relay that back to the designers um, i really don't consider this to be to be idealistic or utopian just because i just analytically have become convinced from my own work and collaboration with RL designers that we will need this or else there will be all sorts of systems we're building whose behavior may very well seem optimal, but, but it, it will be very difficult to evaluate as good or bad. So do you hope that this kind of work eventually uh, influences public policy then, I guess, right? What do you, what do you think the pipeline is from here to, to the point where it's influencing policy? Right. I think it's crucial that we find a way to influence policy. I am myself moving into policy in my own work. Uh, we need better policy. Policy in many ways is going to be uh, a bottleneck for RL specification. Uh, I'm pursuing this actually right now in the context of autonomous vehicles and, and trying to point out ways of reconceiving the relationship between the Department of Transportation and self-driving car firms uh, in a way that will improve our own understanding of road features and the way that we go about building these computation stacks. Uh, we need more people who are straddling the line between research and policy. And, and as I said earlier, I think that we need and, and hopefully we'll get a new generation of practitioners who are comfortable doing so because there's enormous low-hanging fruit there for, 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 to be plucked if people are ready to do so. So besides your own work, um, what other things are happening at, at Chai or, or elsewhere that you find uh, really interesting in terms of ML or RL? 
Yeah, I mentioned multi-agent reinforcement learning topics. I think that they are extremely important. Uh, that field is going to grow rapidly. Uh, multi-agent RL has a kind of natural affinity with pearls, uh, and that's just because political economy is about thinking of the world in terms of multi-agency and multiple forms of agency, uh, and that there's a sense in which that has to happen even before we try to solve AI directly. Um, so I think that multi-agent RL in general is a field that I try and keep a close eye on. Another I would mention, um, you can imagine I, I read quite broadly, so I'm trying to come up with a good answer. Uh, another field that I pay especially close attention to is uh, law. It's called law and political economy, which is there's a blog. Uh, I think it's called it's lpeblog.org, I believe. Um, that is a, an emerging network of scholars and and lawyers uh, who are just now finishing, you know, their law degrees on the East Coast. Uh, although there are branches actually at Berkeley now as well, uh, who are trying to reconceive of the law as itself kind of like um, a, like kind of like code basically that tries to determine the relationship between markets and politics rather than just being a reaction to the way that markets work that it's actually an active ingredient in social order and social structure and I think some of the work that they're doing you know talk about AI and content recommendation I think some of the work they're doing is is extremely insightful with respect to, how we should specify AI systems um, in ways that the law can speak to and in ways that the law can learn from in order for us to make sure that we're building systems that are good uh, rather than just systems that conform to what law already requires us to do or not do as designers. Cool. And we will have a link to that and uh, everything else we mentioned here on the episode page at talkerl.com. Okay. So, um, so Thomas, what do you see for yourself in the future? Like, do you have a, a clear long-term path in mind or do you see a lot, uh, a lot of exploration? I see a lot of exploration. That's, that's how I got this far. I learn a tremendous amount from my collaborators uh, and from keeping my mind open and pursuing all sorts of new ideas and projects intuitively. Uh, I don't spend too much time thinking about which projects are more or less likely to pan out. I think just because this is such a growth area. Um, I mean, basically what we've been talking about is the future of capitalism in this podcast. Um, and so I don't think that that's going to become any less important. So any paper that seems like it's going to be saying something interesting with respect to that, I basically pursue it. Uh, my near-term goal is trying to grow pearls as a community. That That's, I think, some of the most important work that I've done in my career and that I'm likely to do for maybe the next couple of years. So I would encourage anyone who's listening who might be interested in that to please, uh, please reach out or email me or uh, visit our website. Uh, if you go to geesegraduates.org, uh, that has a link to, to the Pearl's description and, and provides you information about how to sign up. Cool. Yeah, I, uh, I absolutely wish you and the Pearl's community luck in, uh, in helping you know, adjust the outcomes for all of us in the better direction. Thomas Gilbert, I got to say, this has been fantastic. Uh, I've, I've rambled a lot, but it's only because I really enjoyed uh, the topic and talking with you. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Um, thanks for sharing your time and your insight with Talk RL. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure to be here. 
Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRLPodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. 